Be merciful to me, a sinner. This I am by nature and practice. This thy word proclaims me to be. This I hope I feel myself to be. Yet thou hast not left me to despair, for there is no peradventure in thy grace. I have all the assurance I need. That with thee is plenteous redemption. In spite of the number and heinousness of my sins, thou hast given me a token for good. The golden scepter is held out, and thou hast said, touch it and live. May I encourage myself by a sense of thy all-sufficiency, by faith in thy promises, by views of the experience of others. To that dear refuge in which so many have sheltered from every storm, may I repair. In that fountain, always freely open for sin, may I be cleansed from every defilement. Sin is that abominable thing which thy soul hates, and this alone separates thee and me. Thou canst not contradict the essential perfections of thy nature. Thou canst not make me happy with thyself till thou hast made me holy like thyself. O holy God, make me such a creature as thou canst take pleasure in, and such a being that I can take pleasure in thee. May I consent to and delight in thy law after the inner man. Never complain over the strictness of thy demands, but mourn over my want of conformity to them. Never question thy commandments, but esteem them to be right. By thy spirit within me, may my practice spring from principle, and my may and my dispositions be conformable with duty. Amen for the Lord's mercy. We are certainly grateful for that. Well, if you have your Bible this morning, let's go ahead and turn to Romans chapter number 2. And then also we'll be in the final paragraph of chapter 16 of the Confession. And this morning we're going to deal with the works of the unregenerate. The works of the unregenerate. We have been moving towards this particular thought all through this paragraph uh, as we've been looking at, uh, or this chapter rather, as we've been looking at the various aspects of the good works uh, that God requires. And of course, we began by asking that question even in the beginning, what is defined as a good work and who can actually do or perform these good works? And the confession writers really waited until paragraph 7 to deal with the reality of the works of the unregenerate. Um, To say at the outset, uh, those works, um, there is a rejection of those, however, there is uh, a a responsibility that is also given in this paragraph. We see there in paragraph 7, it says, Works done by unregenerate men, although for the matter of them, they may be things which God commands. Uh, That's going to be a very important aspect of our study this morning. Uh, The unregenerate can do a work, in a sense, and we'll talk about that, which God commands. And of good use both to themselves and others yet because they proceed not from a heart purified by faith nor are done in a right manner according to the word nor to a right end the glory of god they are therefore sinful and cannot please god nor make a man meet to receive grace from god and yet their neglect of them is more sinful and displeasing to god 
So there's this question that we have to answer this morning, and the question remains regarding how does God view the works of the unbeliever or the works of the unregenerate. This last paragraph is dealing specifically with that. So everyone that is mentioned in this particular paragraph is categorized under the heading of an unregenerate individual or an unbeliever, or we may simply call them a non-believer. So this does acknowledge, the confession does acknowledge, and so does scripture more importantly, uh, that unbelievers can outwardly obey some of the commands of God. Uh, there's there's uh, examples we'll look at this morning where people can, in fact, obey outwardly commands that God gives. Um, I'm going to draw our attention to Romans 2 and what the Apostle Paul uh, was writing about here in chapter 2 primarily deals with uh, God's judgment um, and how he judges, how he views individuals. And of course, Paul covers uh, a full spectrum of many, many different things, and uh, covering from the Gentiles to the Jews, uh, the, the whole second end or the second part of chapter two primarily deals with the guilt of Israel and so and how man stands guilty before God. But I want to pick up there in verse 12. Uh, it says, for as many as have sinned without law shall also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles which have not the law do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the mean while accusing or else excusing one another. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. So the Apostle Paul here even makes uh, some sense of what's happening here. Uh, and, and he makes this generalized statement that just hearing the law and even knowing the law uh, would not necessarily lead a person to uh, be in the family of God. It would be possible to hear the law, to know what the law is. Uh, that does not make one a believer. Uh, so if we have a person who acknowledges, I've heard God's law, um, I could actually recite the Ten Commandments or even go beyond that, uh, that would not mean that they certainly know uh, God in a justified manner. So how would they stand before God? But we could apply this and we could look at this at how, we're, how this is being judged, that there, Paul is writing to the reality that everything will be judged, even man's works will be judged. And so there's going to be a principle that's going to have to be followed in, in order for us to understand how does God view good works? And again, more specifically, how does he view this outward obedience? Uh, again, none of us would deny the reality that we have witnessed people uh, in our life who are not even professed Christians. They don't claim to be. They make no reference to God in their life. Uh, but there is an outward obedience to where it appears to that they are doing good to others and they are doing even some good unto themselves. Yet, scripturally speaking, uh, those good works 
if they are done outside of the body of Christ in the eyes of God are still considered sinful and not acceptable to God. Now, this is a difficult truth to handle uh, because, again, we like to define what is good. And if we define good by what man says is good, uh, again, we are missing what God has said is good. Uh, If you'll turn over to Proverbs chapter 15, verse number 8, this is an interesting place to find this. Uh, in the book of Proverbs, but of course Proverbs is a book that uh, really covers so uh, many things and so many uh, principles and guidelines, but right in the middle of this uh, particular proverb in verse number eight, it says, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. The way of the wicked is an abomination unto the Lord, but he loveth him that followeth after righteousness. So it shows us very clearly that God is not just looking for someone to do something good in order to accept them. Uh, So the principle that we're leading to here is is there has to be something more than just somebody doing something good, uh, even if it benefits society. Okay? Uh, there are very many beneficial things that happen in our society, but again, we're dealing with the reality. Are these things acceptable to God in the purest sense? And that's really what we're dealing with. Uh, if you'll turn over to the Old Testament book also of Amos chapter number 5, Amos chapter number 5, verses 21 and 22. Amos chapter 5, verses 21 and 22 Now, he is primarily dealing with the house of Israel. And again, just because you're of the house of Israel does not, did not make a person a believer. Uh, There were uh, unregenerate Israelites, okay? And he's acknowledging that there were even some who were participating in the commanded feasts. They were participating in their assemblies. They were offering burnt offerings. They were offering sacrifices, and he says, I do not receive them. Look at Amos 5, verse 21. I hate, I despise your feast days, and I will not smell in your solemn assemblies. Though ye offer me burnt offerings and your meat offerings, I will not accept them. Neither will I regard the peace offerings of your fat beasts. Take thou away from me the noise of thy songs, for I will not hear the melody of thy vials, but let judgment run down as waters and righteousness as a mighty stream. Have ye offered unto me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness forty years, O house of Israel? I mean, look what he's asking here. I mean, he's, he's telling them, uh, these, you're offering these things, and, you're, and I'm not accepting them. I'm, I'm not receiving them. Um, and again, was it good to uh, observe the feast days? Absolutely. Uh, is it, was it commanded to offer sacrifices? Absolutely. But he says, I will not regard them. I will not receive them. And he's dealing with the unregenerate. And so this, this paragraph explains the criteria for what a good work actually is. So these criteria are going to have to be met in order to qualify as a good work. So there's the paragraph. So here really is a a brief outline of three main ideas that gives the criteria for a good work that's acceptable for God. You'll notice that all criteria must be met to qualify as a good work. First of all, they must be works commanded by God. Now notice all three have to be met. Uh, An unbeliever, an unregenerate individual can perform a work that's commanded by God. The Israelites were doing it. 
The Israelites were observing the feast days. They were assembling. They were providing sacrifices. And again, it's just like the Apostle Paul said. Just because you heard the law and just because you know the law doesn't make you justified. So all three of these criteria has to be met. Secondly, they must be done through faith. Now, this is the key. Uh, again, they, they, they can't stand alone, but that second one is the key. Uh, that has to be done through faith, which means the only acceptable good works are done by the believer, the unregenerates. Good works are not accepted by him. And thirdly, they must be done for the correct motive or end, namely the glory of God. So really, we'll deal with these things right as they appear. So first of all, let's consider the works commanded by God. Now, in the words of the confession, the matter of a good work must be in accordance with what God has commanded. We kind of dealt with this over the last two Sundays. It's what God commands as a good work, not what man invents and thinks God wants him, wants from him. We saw all, that all the way back in paragraph one of this chapter, where God established in that very first part, for, we can re- reference that briefly, back in the very first chapter, he made reference to good works are only such as God hath commanded in his holy word, and not such as without the warrant thereof are devised by men out of blind zeal or upon any pretense of good intentions. So in other words, just because a person has good intentions, just because they do it with zeal, specifically the confession writer said blind zeal, uh, that does not make it acceptable. So it's not about your intention. It's not about your sincerity. It is about what God says it should be. So unbelievers, to an extent, can meet that first criteria. They could do something that's commanded in the word of God. Um, And they could do it, again, but... Do they meet all the criteria of what Scripture actually says? So, works done by unregenerate men may be commanded by God. And here's where we really start to get into the, 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 the deepness of this. And even what they do, the unregenerate, might be of good usefulness to someone else. Okay, so this is uh, an unregenerate person can do something and it might bring benefit. Again, what did the confession writers have in mind and what did Paul have in mind? What did God have in mind is what's acceptable to him. And that's where the key is. So they can do those things. So they must meet that criteria. The second one, they must be done through faith. Uh, Go over to Romans chapter 14 and let's look at verse 23. Romans 14 verse 23. Actually, we'll start in verse 22 for context's sake. He says, Hast thou faith? Have it to thyself before God. Happy is he that condemneth not himself in that thing which he alloweth. And he that doubteth is damned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Now, we either believe that or we don't. We either believe that or we don't. What he is saying is whatever is not of faith, whatever is not done through faith is sin. Now, again, what has happened in our society and what's happened in our churches is there's been an attempt to redefine what sin is. But reality is, is anything that's done, it's not done through faith in the eyes of God is sin. 
This, this is the principle in which all of these other things must stand or fall. Uh, we could go all the way back to the reality that what's lacking here is that those works that do not proceed through faith do not proceed from a heart that's been purified by faith. Okay, so faith is the key here. Uh, go back to Genesis chapter 4 and look at verse number 5. We're going to be journeying through uh, quite a few scriptures this morning. Genesis 4, of course, this is the familiar story of Cain and Abel. Again, there's been so many interpretations of this. Uh, there's been so many opinions as far as what should have happened, what, what uh, was the real heart of this. Uh, but you'll notice in verse 4, it says, And Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth, and why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. Uh, he, is, he is talking about that being done and being extended and being offered in faith. And that's also what the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews 11, he uses this same illustration that's mentioned in Genesis chapter number uh, 4. Uh, he talks about that in Hebrews 11, verses 4 through 6, when he makes reference to this with regard to faith. Uh, chapter 11 of Hebrews is the faith chapter. It's, it's what people did by faith, and he makes specific reference to this offering. In verse number 4 of Hebrews 11, By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead, yet speaketh. So we see that the manner of doing these works must be done through a heart that's been purified by faith. And no matter what the intent is, no matter, even if we obey what God's command is, if it's done without a heart of faith, it is not acceptable to God. Whatever is not done of faith is sin. So these manner of good works must be correct. And then 1 Corinthians 13, uh, this is uh, known as the love chapter or the uh, chapter that um, almost every single uh, wedding often refers to 1 Corinthians 13, and it is about love, it is about charity, uh, but it's also so much more than that. In the first three verses of 1 Corinthians 13, Paul writes, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass for a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Now, there is this connection between the love, the charity he's talking about, and faith. Okay? There's a connection between the love and faith. So it is impossible for an unbeliever, for the unregenerate, to accomplish this because they are still dead in their sin. Uh, folks, this, is, this was one of the most eye-opening things coming around to the, the truth and realities of Reformed theology, is you have to come to the understanding in order to even embrace Reformed theology, you have to believe in man's total deadness. 
Because if you believe man has any life in him at all, that sin did not totally leave him in a dead condition, you will always find a way around this. But until a person is absolutely secure in the reality that God says you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and a dead man, a dead woman, cannot raise themselves from that condition. Which means how could they do a good work if they're dead in their trespasses and sins? In order for that to be accomplished, then you would have to say that they weren't totally dead. They were just almost dead. So they summoned enough energy to bring themselves out of that what appeared to be dead condition. You either believe you're dead in your sin or you're almost dead. That, that's the two choices. You're either dead or you're almost. And to be dead in sin means unless there is a regenerating work of God by the Spirit in the person, no matter what commands you follow, it cannot be done through faith, which means it cannot be acceptable to God. So they lack those three things. They, lack, they do not proceed from a heart-purified faith. They're not done in the right manner according to the word. Okay? People that are doing good works who are not in the faith are not doing it with an interest towards God in most cases. They're doing it disinterestedly. They're doing it in a way that is not to seek God's acceptance, but oftentimes to be the, have the acceptance of men. Now, there are people who say, I'm doing this through faith. I'm doing this through a desire to please God. But unless they are truly regenerate, God does not accept it. And so they're also, thirdly, that would mean that they are not done with the right purpose in mind. Remember what 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatever you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the what? To the glory of God. Everything a believer does is to the glory of God. Every good work is to the glory of God. So that's what, that's what the confession writers had in mind. That's what Paul had in mind. That's what the authors of Genesis and Hebrews and every other part of the Bible had in mind is that this must be done through faith. And then thoroughly, they must be done with the correct motives. So really, we have to think about correct motive, the glory of God. What does this actually mean? Well, first of all, we know it's all to the glory of God. But go over to Matthew chapter number 6 and look at how the Lord dealt with uh, those who were doing good works. And I want you to notice how specific he is. And we studied this on Wednesday night um, a few months ago at this point. But in Matthew chapter number 6, look, look there beginning in verse number 1. And we'll read down through verse 6. Jesus was very, very stern about this. He says, Take heed that ye do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise, ye have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily, I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms may be in secret, and thy father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Both of these examples, Jesus says specifically, those two that he labels hypocrites, he says they do get their reward. Their reward is the applause of men. That's what they get. Okay? He is, he is extremely 
uh, direct and extremely stern about this taking heed. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward, but thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut the door, pray to the Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. And he goes on, and of course, he introduces them to the realities of the Lord's Prayer. But again, the correct motive. The hypocrites, the Pharisees, did not have the correct motive in mind. They were not interested at all about the glory of God. And even though they said, I fast, I give, I tithe, I do all these things, God said, I do not accept them because you are not doing those through a heart of faith. It would be accurate to say that probably even more than many others in that day, the Pharisees probably did more works commanded by God than anybody else. But the problem is they didn't do it through faith. So none of those things were accepted. That's the real danger of the pharisaical idea, folks, is if we get this in our mind's eye, that it is all about the works that we do, but we're not doing it through a heart of faith with, a with the end of the, the goal being the glory of God, it's not acceptable. No matter how long your line of good deeds is, that's scripturally what this is happening. Now, what did Paul say about a heart uh, that is not converted or the unregenerate. Romans 8 verse 7 deals with this. In verse 6, he says, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Again, Paul was dealing with the people in the flesh were the unregenerate. The people in the spirit were the regenerate. So clearly he says it's impossible for an individual who is not redeemed to please God because they are enmity with God. Very, very crucial that we understand that. So we've got to view the works of the unbelievers really in two different ways. Clearly we see that they're not acceptable to God and they are still considered sinful. Those works cannot make a person more acceptable to God that gives them the opening for God to give them grace. That's what it would require. These good works would have to be a means in which we're to open the coffers of heaven and allow God to pour out grace if they were being accepted. You would, there would have to be an exchange being done here. If God accepts them, then he is, he is then obligated to pour out grace to accept it. He's, do you see what's happening here? It can't be both. He, he can't, he can't uh, accept them because then he would have to be exchanging that acceptance for a little bit of grace. So you do another good work and he gives a little bit more grace. That would make God a debtor to man, which he has never been a debtor to man. That would be earning God's grace through the things that we do. Grace has been and will always be a gift from God and can never be earned by works. Paul says in Romans 11, chapter, number, or chapter 11, verse number 6, he says, And if by grace, then it is no more of works, Otherwise, grace is no more grace, but if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more 
work. So these, we have to view the works of the unregenerate individual in two ways. Number one, they are sinful. Again, this is difficult for the human mind to grasp. They are sinful, even though they are good works in the sight of men. Secondly, they do not qualify a man to receive grace. Okay, they don't qualify a man. That's why Paul, uh, the Lord Jesus in Matthew 6 said, when you give, do not sound a trumpet. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. Don't do it to receive the applause of men because that is all you ever receive. See, it would be incorrect to say the Pharisees never received any rewards. They received rewards. Their rewards were of men, not of God. And that's really the key to what's happening here. So the works of unbelievers are not acceptable to God and are therefore sinful. So the works of unbelievers are therefore not acceptable to God. They cannot make a person more acceptable so that God then gives them grace. This would be trying to earn God's grace through the things we do. Grace is by definition a gift from God and cannot be earned by works. Now these are some of the first fruits of understanding uh, what grace really is. Okay, and just understanding that... um, Again, nobody's trying to be hateful about this, but we're being scriptural about it. Um, you know, it's really difficult to, and I think somebody brought this up either last week or the week before, uh, how do we respond to good works in, in our society, even with regard to uh, social actions? Okay, and that was a deep question, and it was intentionally a deep question. Uh, again, some of these things can be used to further the gospel and should be used to open up the doors of the gospel, But just because we see something good being done doesn't mean it's acceptable to God. And it doesn't mean, pardon the expression, that we hitch our wagon to every good thing in the world we see just because it appears to be good. Because if it's not done through faith, according to the commands of God, with the means of glorifying God, then we have to ask ourselves the question, does God even accept it? So that's very, very important to to think about here. So can we absolutely conclude from this that a good work must meet or conform to the four criteria? Now, this is, this is a, a direct quote from, some of you may have read this, and you might even have this, uh, from Sam Waldron. It's a modern exposition of 69 Baptist Confession of Faith. Uh, really, really good work. I, I referenced that through this study. I don't use all of it, but I did think that this particular uh, commentary on this was good. He said, in order for a good work to meet or conform, he said, it must have the right matter. It must be a thing God commands. It must have the right root. It must proceed from a heart uh, purified by faith. It must be the right manner. God's work must be done God's way. And the right end, the glory of God, must be its ultimate purpose. So he, he, he adds that manner part, which we're talking about too, but he really puts that very clearly. The right, the right matter, the right root, the right manner, and the right end. Those are the things that make a work acceptable to God. So we have to ask ourselves then the question, can, then, can it then be concluded that there is no value in the unregenerate doing good works? The confession indicates that while the good works of unbelievers are sinful and not acceptable to God, to not do them is even worse. Now this is where this really made me kind of sit back and say, whoa, now this is kind of a deep thought. The idea that the confession writers had in mind here was that, remember, they're, he's, they're dealing primarily, or prim, uh, paragraph 7 is dealing with the unregenerate. 
It's the very last phrase of that paragraph says, yet their neglect of them is more sinful and displeasing to God. So think about this for a minute. Their good works, if it's not done through a heart of faith, according to God's commands, for the glory of God, it's unacceptable to God, but for them not to do them is even more sinful and displeasing to God. Uh, look at Matthew 25. And this is, this is the, the, the passage that they reference as the last footnote, footnoted verse here. Matthew 25, verse 41. Actually, let's go back to verse 38. It says, when, when, when saw we thee a stranger and took thee in, or naked and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick or in, in prison and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Then shall he also say unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungered, and ye gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me not in. Naked, and ye clothed me not. Sick and in prison, and ye visited me not. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee a hungered, or a thirst, or strangers, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee? Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye did it, un did it not to one of the least of these, ye did it not unto me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Now, if you notice the order of what the Lord was talking here, don't get the impression that he was saying the good works would have made you righteous. Because there's a clear separation between who he's talking to, because he, he clearly says after that, the ones on his left hand, he says, depart from me, ye cursed. But then he goes down to give a list of the things that they should have done. It's really the principle of God allowing man to continue in his sin and allowing him to be cast off into everlasting fire. I'll be honest with you, this is one of those really, really difficult passages because when you look at it, he's almost like he's expecting them to do something that couldn't be acceptable unless they were actually in Christ. But yet, it seems to magnify what's happening. They even ask the question, when, when did we see these things? When we saw thee a hungered or a thirst, did not minister unto thee. We, didn't we? So it's very, 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 very staggering uh, what he's talking about here. And then go back to 1 Kings, and let's look at uh, chapter 21 quickly. 1 Kings 21. And this will probably be a familiar individual that we're, we've certainly heard of. And I want you to notice the wording uh, that is given uh, towards this man. 1 Kings 21, verse 27. It says, And it came to pass when Ahab heard those words that he rent his clothes and put sackcloth upon his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went softly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Seest thou how Ahab humbleth himself before me? 
Because he humbleth himself before me, I will not bring the evil in his days, but in his son's days will I bring the evil upon his house. Uh, here's even this principle, an unbelieving Ahab who did, who did something that God, God says because he humbled, he said, I'm not going to bring evil on him, but I am going to bring evil on his son. So here's an example of something that was being done according to God's commands, and yet there were still consequences to what was happening here. So their absence of these good works of the unregenerate, uh, if man does not do them, it does deepen their sin and increases God's displeasure. Again, this is one of those great mysteries of God uh, that we really struggle to find uh, the difference between spiritual understanding conflicting with human understanding. Because that, if you're like me, it's, it's, it's rising up in you a lot of different human questions. And it's rising up in me a lot of things that say, well, wait a minute, what about this and what about this? But remember what he's saying, anything that's not done through faith is sin. We, a person could be responsible for feeding an entire city of hungry people, hungry children. If it's not done through faith, it's still considered sin, but to not do them, it's even deeper. It's, 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 that's, a, that's a deep well. It's a deep well because we see the result of the unregenerate doing something good, but yet if it's not done through faith, again, it's hard for us to be able to comprehend all these things uh, just on uh, the surface of them. So, Really, the theology matters are basically the questions we've already asked. So if we were to say, what are those three reasons? This is probably more of a review question. Why the works of the unregenerate are unacceptable to God? What would you say to that? What, just what are, maybe three, what are the main, three main reasons that they're unacceptable to God? They're not done in faith. They're not done in faith. So that's, that's, the, that's the main one. No incorrect motive. So there would be ones that something that God hasn't commanded, right? So there are things that God hasn't commanded that man say God should accept. God should accept my good intentions. God should accept my sincerity. God should take it because I think he should, right? So even though the works of the unregenerate are sinful and unacceptable to God, why is it worse for the unbeliever not to do them? So I'm leaving you with that difficult question. I mean, where, where, do, we, where do we arrive at that question? Where do we arrive at, what, is, what does God mean by that? That's a good observation. Yeah, that's a very good observation. Anyone want to add to that or add another thought to it? Or a totally different thought? What about the accountability of the believer? The accountability? Seems like there's got to be a certain level of accountability there, but 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. No, I think no. I think I think there's there's credence to that too. This is this is one of those really those deep theological wells. It really is. I mean, you, you kind of it, it's it's one of the things that you get a, that says, well, see, that's one of the contradictory statements. That, that's one of God's contradictions. Is that a contradiction? Is it a contradiction for God to say, I can't accept your good works if they're not done in faith, but if you don't do them, your sin deepens and it's even worse. I mean, God says himself, that's the whole reason he raised up Pharaoh. It's the whole reason to glorify himself. I, again, that that's, that's, goes back again. I mean, does God have the right to do that? Does God, have the, does God have the right to raise up people who cannot do good works because they've not been regenerated? He's the author of regeneration and then to increase their sin and displeasure with them by not doing them. <laughs> if God has a sovereign right to all things, then God has a sovereign right to do anything he deems because he does all things right. These are, this is another one of those stumbling blocks in Reformed theology and biblical theology <laughs> because that's where the person who's all of free will says, hold it, wait a minute. Hold it. That can't be so. And their answer to that is what? You help me. How would they respond to what I just said about does God have the right to create someone for his glory, not give them saving faith, and yet still condemn them because they didn't do that which they're supposed to do? What would be the person who believes in 100% free will? How would they respond to that? Well, 
right there. That's not fair. So let's elaborate on that. Why is that not fair? Why are they saying that's not fair? You want to keep going? <laughs> Okay, so to not so to accuse God not being fair is using their standards to judge who God is and what God has a right to do. Yeah. Well, that's one issue too. They misinterpret Romans nine, or they just they just skip it. So. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Right, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Some people twist it and say, well, God already knew that they wouldn't choose him. Yes. They, they knew that. Yes. Right, and, that's, and that would be the other, that's the other part of what he did. Okay, that's not fair, so it must be what God really meant to say is that those were just the ones he knew would never choose him to begin with. Which, again, means it's falling back on the dead to raise themselves from the dead. Because the same argument goes to it's unfair, then why doesn't God save everyone? Which leads us into limited atonement, which now everybody who doesn't believe in this is starting to cringe. Because they're starting to say, wait a minute, no, I don't like this. Man's standard, man doesn't like the real God. And you wouldn't like the real God had he not changed your heart. You would not like these truths either. These would be horrifying truths to you because you have not had your eyes open and your ears unstopped to believe it in here. Yes. And you have, and that's that's what we started off with: the value, of vision, reading, mercy. You know, we can ask the questions: Why didn't God save anyone? Or we can look at the question that we really should ask: That why did God save me? And if you live in that world and that realm of why did God in His mercy save me, you really stop worrying about all the things that you really don't have an answer to and you don't have control over. But I find a greater comfort to know that he will not leave any of that are his own. You know, people say that kills evangelism. That doesn't kill evangelism. That tells us that they're his, they're, his people are all over this world. And there's not a single one of them that's going to get left behind. We don't have to have the role of all that are going to come to Christ. But I have a greater assurance of knowing all that he has called unto himself, all that the Father has given him, are going to come to him. That's a much greater comfort to me than saying, listen, if we don't do something, all these people are going to die and they're going to get left behind. And the reason they're going to get left behind is because of you. Now, again, that does not excuse us from no evangelism. That ought to spur you to more evangelism. That ought to make you want to give the gospel more, knowing that he has his elect all over this world. But I take greater comfort in a lost loved one knowing that if they are of God and God, God 
Father gave them to the Son, they may not be there now, but one day they will come to Christ and he will no wise turn them out. But I'll have, I'll have discussions with people who would say, I'd rather it be on, I'd rather they get, to, they get to make the final decision. And I said, do you really know what you're, do you really know what you're wanting? You're wanting a dead person to raise themselves and make a choice for God and choose Christ. Now, I've told some of you, I haven't always took this Bible position. These were doctrines that at one time in my life I hated. I would have been that free will that would have answered the question saying, well, that just means God knew who he was going to choose. That's not fair. That was me. That's exactly what I believed. God wouldn't do that. But it's until God gives us an understanding of what's really happening and who he is. But let's go ahead and stop there. Good, good discussion this morning. Um, and I hope, I hope these discussions are helpful. I hope the lessons are helpful. And um, so well, you finished uh, paragraph uh, 7 and chapter 16. All right, so let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this time. And Lord, I thank you for your people. And Lord, it is such an encouragement to be able to be among the brethren and to be able to uh, preach and teach the word of God. And I pray, Father, that these truths would be sealed in our hearts today and that we would not let them slip. Uh, Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for not giving us what each one of us absolutely deserves. And none of us deserve to be in Christ. None of us deserve uh, to be spared on our own merits and our own righteousness, but only on the merits and righteousness, righteousness of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank, thank you for this time, Lord. I pray you will bless this fellowship and uh, be with us as we go into our worship service this morning. And it's in Christ's name and for his sake, I pray and ask these things. Amen.